you're not already there, open your scriptures to Second John. And let me say good morning and welcome. Good to see each of you. I was already able to meet a few new folks this morning. And welcome to those streaming online. It's great to have you as well. Uh, one of our regular streamers is in with, with us in person this morning. My mom is here today. And so it's good to have her in-house. And so a special welcome to her. She's not here to visit me, by the way. She's here to visit her new great-granddaughter. So I'm just that added package. So any, if you've been here for as long as we've been here, 10 years, any long-term complaints? Mom would love to take responsibility for me at the end of the service. That'll be the complaints department on that side. You want to just wave, Mom, so they know? (laughs) It's good to see each of you. For us, it's been uh, just about three weeks since I've seen you face-to-face, that Last phrase of John, I hope to come see you face to face. There's something about being in person, even this morning, the the facial expressions and the warmth of tone and just seeing one another is a great blessing. And that does not take away from those who are streaming with us online. There's a type of face to face here, though not in person, but we look forward uh, to seeing you again one day. Uh, Second and third John are the shortest letters in the New Testament, each less than 300 words In the Greek, and they correspond to what was a brief personal letter, which would have been a single sheet of papyrus standard size. It all fits on one sheet of paper. By the way, that's not an ideal way to begin a speech or a sermon, as everybody learns in speech 101 or pulpit speech. It doesn't grip you. uh, But the fact is, these are extraordinarily personal and short letters. What 2nd and 3rd John do is they provide a glimpse into the Apostle John's interactions with a local church or churches most likely in or around the area of Ephesus. One commentator suggests this. The best lens through which to view the letters of John is the spiritual and theological crisis gripping his church in Ephesus and fracturing its unity. If you if you tracked with Emily as she read that for us this morning, you'll see an abrupt shift between verse six and seven in this letter. These letters provide a window into the closing years of the apostolic era with its difficulties and successes. Now, we won't look together at third John for about three weeks because next week um, we are having a guest speaker with us, uh, the pastor from Littleton Bible Chapel. He'll be with us on Palm Sunday. Then the following Sunday is our our celebration of Christ's resurrection in which it'll primarily be scripture reading and music. And then the Sunday after, Lord willing, pending no blizzard, uh, we'll look at third John together. But here's how these two letters sort of fall into place in second John, the elder. That's what he calls himself. He uses a title probably to press in his authority the elder puts forward a qualification to Christian hospitality. That immediately should be striking because of all the encouragements that we receive in the scripture to entertain strangers, to host people, to show hospitality. But what the elder, what John is saying is truth matters when displaying love because false teachers will exploit kindness and undermine the truth about Jesus Christ. That's Second John in a nutshell. In Third John, the elder writes to a man named Gaius, 
and praises him for his hospitality, but at the same time rebukes a man by name, something that seems very unloving in our culture, but he rebukes Diotrephes for his spirit of schism. So if you think about second John, not only does truth matter when displaying love, but third John, love matters when standing for the truth. For example, let me just give you a glimpse ahead since these are going to be sort of disconnected by two weeks. In third John, the apostle writes to Gaius, quote, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So in Second John, you have a welcoming that is prohibited. And in Third John, you have an exclusion that is prohibited. Okay, that's how we're going to follow these, these two pieces of personal correspondence. So here's the emphasis in both. And they're really case studies from First John. First John was more of an open theological treatise. Second and third John take the teachings from First John and apply them to personal situations. And here it is. Love and truth. Truth and love are inseparable. Any dichotomy between the two is unbiblical. They are both non-negotiable. Or we could say it this way. True biblical love cannot exist without truth. Or we could say biblical truth cannot exist without what? Without love. They have to go together. Both are major themes in 1 John that are now applied in 2 and 3 John within the context of the local church, but specifically, and this is surprising, in the context of hospitality. So let's look at 2 John. Walk in love and truth. And I've tried to highlight almost obnoxiously uh, the repetition of words. Okay, that's one way that you can find out uh, the theme or the big idea that the writer is pointing at. Uh, with 2 John, it's easier to look at it because it is a shorter letter. Uh, of course, as is fitting uh, for a personal letter, John's begin, John begins with a greeting and a blessing. But for our point, I want us to look at his emphasis even when he's writing his introduction. The elder, there's John's title, to the elect lady and her children. There have been thousands of words to try to identify who this elect lady is. Some believe it is a, pers a person, okay, and her children being those who meet in her house. She would actually host the church somewhere there in Ephesus. And they point out that both elect and lady could be proper names, electa and curia. It is probably, though, John's reference to the church and the children are the individuals or we would we would be familiar with the idea of members of that church. Either way, it doesn't affect John's big idea, whether it's a lady or whether it is the local church. John's big idea doesn't change. But notice John's affection for this group of people whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Here's the blessing. Grace, mercy and peace will be with us 
from God, the father and from Jesus Christ, the father's son in truth and love. Remember, they're inseparable. Now, the next section. If we could go back to slide two, uh, this is where John's first message begins. It begins in verse four, but I want to continue with those primary words, the repetition of the words. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. By the way, what what is inferred by some of your children? I mean, if I came to you, if you're if you're a parent, I don't even want to pick a number because you'll think I'm talking about you. If you're a parent of 15 children, okay, we don't have anybody here. I don't believe that has 15 children. And I say, you know, it's really great when we gather on Sunday that some of your children obey you. Which means what? There's probably a few that aren't, and it's obvious. Okay, so I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. By the way, in John 3, there is a child not walking in the truth, and his name's Diotrephes. Just as we were commanded. So this is going to be surprising. Um, love and truth are inseparable, and they are tethered to commands. So we don't get to define love however we want to, whether it's relativistic or sentimental. The, the love and the truth that the Apostle John is talking about are tethered to clear teaching, to commands, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment. There it is again. But the one we have had from the beginning, by the way, that is when Jesus spoke in John 13. I'm giving you a new commandment. What does he say in John 13? That you love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men, all people, by this a watching world will know that you are my followers, my disciples, if you have what? Love for one another. That's what John is referring back to. That we love one another. Now, John qualifies what biblical love is. Look at, look at verse 6. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now, I'm going to show you a slide that the font is going to be extremely small, but I wanted to put this whole first section together so you could see all the words and the different emphases that John is making. Okay, the word love is used four times. Truth is used five times. Walk which refers to lifestyle or behavior. Basically, love and truth affect how we live. That is used three times. And interestingly, command or commandment or commandments is used four times. But it's the combination of love and truth tethered to the commands of Christ that has become extremely rare. Even though Jesus said in John 14, 15, and you'll be able to finish this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love and truth tethered to the commandments of God is becoming extremely rare. I thought about uh, animals that have gone extinct. Not just rare, but they're gone. Uh, there's a few that I would love to have seen. By the way, extinction is the termination of a kind or a group of kinds, usually a species, and the moment of extinction is generally considered to be the death of the last individual of the species. I would have loved to have seen a dodo bird. 
Uh, the last dodo died in 1662. Uh, the dodo is a flightless bird endemic to the island of Mauritius, east of Madagascar. Uh, it couldn't fly. It wasn't very majestic, but it is fascinating. I would love to have seen a dodo bird. Saber-toothed cat. There's another one. As if the lion needed sabered teeth, right? Sword-like teeth. We've seen lions kill in Zambia and Kenya and the carnage they leave behind and the death. And it's not like adding saber-like teeth is fair. I mean, that's just how my mind works. But this this saber-toothed cat actually roamed in North and South America. But as if the lion needed sword-like teeth, I was thinking that would be like the high school football team playing dodgeball with first graders, right? When you equip an already skilled predator uh, with teeth like swords. Last one, woolly, woolly mammoth. Would love to have seen that enormous mammal. Several of these found preserved in tar pits. Um, I love this when I was reading about it. Uh, it is believed to be closely related to the modern day elephant. You think? I mean, I could have made that field note, right? Comes out, looks like an elephant, but wearing wool. Let's call it a woolly mammoth. Um, They're all gone. You can't see those now. And I started to wonder if the combination of love and truth in the church is also on its way to extinction. There are people that promote love so strongly that they allow the edges on truth to be soft. And there are some people who promote truth so strongly that it feels cold and unchristlike, even though it's truth. But the combination of love and truth tethered to God's word seems to almost be extinct in the evangelical world. Do you know love without truth lacks substance? It can be mushy and misguided. It spirals down to mere sentimentalism. We end up interpreting love according to our own experience, our own views, our own hurts. That's why John says in verse 6, and this is love. We don't get to define what biblical love is, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Referring to Jesus when he said, I give you a new commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. The language used here, love and truth, connected to a command, is really foreign in our culture where pluralism, relativism, skepticism, inclusivism, cynicism, and tolerance reign. And so 2 John sort of moves in a single little letter to this church. We are reminded to the church, look at verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Of course, that's really all by way of introduction. He's commending them. He's praising them. But now you're going to notice a sudden shift in verse seven. Look at the next section. I mean, John just said, walk in love and truth. Now what he's going to say is exercise discerning hospitality. This section is also marked by repeated words. The word teaching occurs three times and the word deceiver or deceivers is also used three times. Of course, deceiver, deceivers or antichrist. Here's why the sudden shift. John has a 
close relationship with these churches near Ephesus. He understands that heretical teachers posing as Christian missionaries were planning to work in the community, a church where its individuals are located. Matter of fact, these may be the very ones that went out from that local church and are returning, which means they would have had relationships with the people in that church. In 1 John, he says this, in 1 John 2, verse 18 to 19, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Listen to what he says in verse 19. They went out from us, meaning these Antichrists, people that are not saying the right thing about Jesus, they are against the Christ. They went out from us, from within us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. Do you see the tension here? If someone that you were very close to in a local church decided to say the wrong thing about Jesus, they left the church, moved to another state, wanted to come back and visit, and actually not just visit with you, but hey, could you... Could you have a small gathering in your home and let me talk to them about the things I have learned since I left? Or John would say those who have gone ahead or out of bounds, out of the traditional teaching of Christ. What is your responsibility, even though you were very close friends with that person? That's the instruction that John is giving to these people. Apparently, the church's members were known for their hospitality. And made it a practice of keeping itinerant preachers visiting the community. They didn't have in that day a network of hotels like we do. Comfortable beds, free breakfasts. Matter of fact, if you read any of the history of the inns in those places, they were flea infested and also infested with unsavory people. What John is doing is where the church was actually showing hospitality, he is saying do not give indiscriminate hospitality to traveling teachers who do not hold to the truth. Let me ask you, is that easy? Is that easy to tell someone who wants to undermine other people that you are related to or other church members? Is that easy to say no to that person? It seems unloving. But in reality, what John is doing is striking a balance between truth and biblical love in an effort to preserve the clarity of the gospel. Just want to walk through this section. Notice how his exhortation uh, to exercise spiritual discernment unfolds. First, look at verse 7. Basically, he's saying this. Recognize the deceptive. So each of us, not just the leaders, not just the elders, each of us has a responsibility to to have godly discernment, to recognize when this is happening in a local church. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, they haven't just left to take up residence in the world. They've gone out to spread this new teaching, but a new teaching that does not say the right thing about Jesus Christ or the gospel. And by the way, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. How do you recognize them? Well, you recognize them by a specific truth they deny. Those 
who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So it's based upon a specific point of Christology, or we would say the doctrine of Jesus Christ. If somebody denies this about Jesus Christ, or somebody says the wrong thing about Jesus, they are a deceiver and the Antichrist, or one of the Antichrist plural. We need to understand that the spirit of Antichrist, which John says is already in the world, will always be identified because the teaching will always be a defective view of who Jesus Christ is. Second, don't just recognize the deceptive, but second, resist loss. Look at verse 8. Watch yourselves. Okay, that's present tense. Continually be on guard for this, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, which is a community of faith, proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ, but may win a full reward. The loss of salvation is not the focus, but the loss of reward is for contending for the truth and maintaining the purity of the gospel. So not only recognize the deceptive, not only resist the loss of personal reward, but third, reprove those doomed for destruction. Look at verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead... And does not abide in the teaching of Jesus Christ. So they've, they've broken the boundaries. They've gone outside of the borders of what is true about Jesus. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. They may use every single word we use. Grace, justification, faith. They may use all the same vocabulary and mean something totally different. And if it undermines the truth about Jesus Christ, they are not Christians. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And this is something that is uncomfortable, but mature believers are accustomed to. And that is this, that it is unloving and untruthful to provide assurance of salvation to those who say the wrong thing about Jesus. Matter of fact, John, in his account of the gospel, says this in John 5, verse 22 to 24. He says, for the, 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 these are Jesus' words, for the Father judges no one. That comes as a surprise to many people. Matter of fact, even when we think of the great white throne judgment and the one who sits on it, heaven and earth flees away, do you, do you understand that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to whom? To the Son. Why would the Father give all judgment to the Son? Jesus says this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, Jesus said, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The reason John is being so direct on adding this qualifier to Christian hospitality is because if you say the wrong thing about Jesus Christ, you don't go to heaven. If you reject what Jesus said about himself, you are not born again. That's why fourth... John charges us to reject the dangerous for the sake of gospel purity. Look at verse 10 to 11. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is striking, surprising. In light of how often, again, the New Testament encourages hospitality. Gary Burge, in his commentary, rightly notes this, quote, These troubling verses should be viewed as emergency regulations tied directly to the crisis at hand. They are directives from the battle zone and they underscore the extreme danger the church was in, not only when it tolerates, but actually invites into its ranks those whose teachings undermine traditional Christology. So this is the verse that sort of strikes people. So we need to understand what John is saying and what John is not saying. Okay, what is John saying when he says, don't invite them into your home? Because some of you, some of you are thinking, okay, I've had ongoing discussions, you know, with Mormons who have come to our door. I've invited them into our table, served them a beverage, and we discuss things back and forth. I mean, have you transgressed Second John? I've had recent discussions with some of you who have an ongoing relationship with a Jehovah's Witness who is glad to share his 10 minutes as long as he gives you your 10 minutes. Have you disobeyed Second John? What is John saying? He is instructing the church to not provide support and assistance to false teachers, teacher leaders, influencers. What John is doing is not unloving or unkind. He is balancing love and truth. We must never encourage false teachers in their missionary work or pray God's blessing upon them if they deny Jesus Christ in whom and in whom alone is life. When he says, do not do not receive him into your house. John most likely has in mind a private residence that is not just a private residence, but is also being used as the gathering of the local church, which would make sense. Even if he's writing to an elect lady, it would be her that is hosting this local church. And he's encouraging her and her children not to support false missionary endeavors. Here's what John is not saying. He is not saying that we cannot allow Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Muslims or Hindus or anyone else into our home for a visit whereby we share the gospel with them. That in no way undermines the local church and the purity of the gospel. Matter of fact, you are taking an opportunity to show Christian hospitality and present the truth to them without supporting their efforts. You're not compromising the truth of the gospel or your local church. As, as Smalley says in his commentary, John is not therefore forbidding private hospitality, but rather an official welcome into the congregation with the widespread opportunities which would then be available for the heretics to promote their cause. This is what this little small letter of 2 John is saying. Now look at verse 12. Um, John will get to his conclusion before I get to mine. Okay. Look at verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, why? Because he loves them. He sees this church on the brink of fracture. He says, I would rather not use paper and ink. But even then, even before texting and social media, paper and ink were not the ideal communicative tool. 
There's something about being in person, something about a tone and a face or a feisty little look that, that my kids see on me when they just know something, right? You can't get that in paper and ink. You can't get dad humor in paper and ink, right? But you can see it. You can feel it. You can pick up on it. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Maybe a neighboring church in the same area where John was writing this letter from. Okay. When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, he made a number of profound statements. One concerned truth and another concerned love. In John 14, 6, Jesus said this. And, 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 don't, and don't bypass the, the article because it is the sort of the only He said, I am the way. And those who go on ahead of the way do not have the way. I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Any teaching outside of that is false teaching. False teaching will center on saying the wrong thing about Jesus Christ. Another statement Jesus said that night concerned love. In John 13, 35, he said this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So really, this letter, if you look at it in its entirety, it is linked by three commands. One of those repeated words. First, the command to continue to love one another as the Lord loved you. And as he said from the beginning in John 13, 34 and 35. Second, the command to be on the lookout for false teachers. That is loving if Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody else can go to heaven. Nobody can go to the Father except through Him. It is loving for you to tell people you're wrong. You've accepted false teaching. You're trusting in something that will not carry you to the Father. And third, the command to reject False teachers. It's interesting. In Revelation chapter 1, John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. While there, he receives a vision from the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing he sees is the exalted Christ. And even John, who walked with Jesus, was not expecting Jesus to look like that. You know the description. Eyes with flaming fire, a sword, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, white Hair And John falls down as a dead man. And the reason that's right at the beginning of the book of Revelation is that is supposed to adjust every other view you have. That this is all about the worship of God and the Lamb. But what immediately follows are seven individual messages to seven local churches in Asia Minor. And the first of those messages goes to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 provide a window into the life of seven first century churches, their strengths and or their weaknesses. And in this first message, listen to what Jesus says to this church at Ephesus, the same, the same area of churches that John is now writing, second, third John to. Jesus says he commends them, quote, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So it seems that these churches, this church at Ephesus, was doing the right thing by standing for the truth. 
testing false teachers, rejecting false teachers. He commends them for not being passive, for not bearing with them. And he commends them for being assertive, for testing them. Matter of fact, Paul had warned to the Ephesian elders themselves that fierce wolves would enter in, not sparing the flock. So now you see this church doing exactly what they should have been doing. But after this commendation by Jesus Christ, it again abruptly changed. And Jesus says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. In in 2 John, the apostle is contending for love and truth. Why? Why both? Because you know that we can become bitter and weary by testing false teachers and rejecting them. We can become jaded and cynical and without affection. And Jesus, that does not say the right thing about Jesus. Cold orthodoxy does not say the right thing about Jesus. Jesus says, I have this against you. Loveless separatism does not reflect rightly who Jesus is. Cold truth, even full truth, but cold does not say the right thing about Jesus to a lost and watching world. What is the solution? Jesus says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and you're doing this well, but I have this against you. Repent and do the works you did at first. Don't stop standing for the truth. But do it with Christ like love for others. What are some ways Highlands can apply John's commendation and his cautions? First, by asking a few simple questions. Do you love one another? Do other people see Jesus in you by how you talk about other Christians, even by how you talk about other church members? Is it conspicuously loving and fair and generous? John says in verse 5, 2 John, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another is your truth speaking. Well, I just tell them what I, you know, what I think, what I believe. That's fine. If it's accompanied by love. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. We should not just be content giving the right Bible answer or placing a scriptural verse over somebody's problem or just being zealous with the truth. So maybe for those of us in here who love the truth and fight for the truth tenaciously need to understand that that must be accompanied by love, like the church at Ephesus in Revelation. Do you love one another? Secondly, Do you offer indiscriminate acceptance of false teachers and teaching into your home? Whether through the front door or through books, blogs, podcasts, or religious programming. Perhaps you are very loving, even Christ-like loving and trusting, but may need to grow in the area of godly discernment. And again, this is a rejection of teacher leaders that are saying the wrong thing about Jesus Christ, not a rejection of people that are simply unlike you. Remember Jesus teaching in Matthew 5, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? So you have a responsibility to love those who are not like you, while at the same time rejecting teacher leaders, false teachers who would undermine the local church. 
Finally, if you ever feel overwhelmed and jaded by the trivia of the church, by the division centered on philosophy of ministry or church maintenance or music style or youth programs or a hundred other things, Second John serves as a reminder, as an exhortation to wake up and focus on the real threats rather than personal preferences. I'm going to invite our music team to come forward. We're going to sing together, O Church, Arise. And here is the challenge from Second John. Love and truth tethered to the commands of Scripture and never tolerating someone who is a teacher leader saying the wrong thing about Jesus Christ. Why? When you do that, you remove the good news and the hope that others can have. This is the hope. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one goes unto the Father except through Him. Therefore, do not offer indiscriminate acceptance of people who are saying a hundred other things about Him. In the first stanza, the second part, we will sing, With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Let's pray.